Chapter 15 Quenching the Spirit Quench not the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 In discussing the subject presented in this text, I will try to do the following. Roman numeral 1. Show how the Holy Spirit influences the mind. Roman numeral 2. Draw some conclusions from the known method of the Spirit's operations. Roman numeral 3. Show what it is to quench the Spirit. Roman numeral 4. Show how this may be done. And Roman numeral 5. Explain the consequences of quenching the Spirit. Roman numeral 1. How does the Holy Spirit influence the human mind? The Holy Spirit does not influence the human mind by physical means. He does not do so by using direct physical power. The action of the will is not influenced in this way and cannot be. The very idea is absurd. It is both absurd and at war with the very idea of free agency to think that physical means would produce voluntary mental phenomena. Just as it does physical. It is absurd to think that the same physical means that move a planet would move the human will. Also, the Bible informs us that the Spirit influences the human mind by means of truth. The Spirit persuades people to act in view of truth, just as we ourselves influence our fellow men by presenting truth to their minds. I do not mean that God presents truth to the mind in the same way we do. Of course, His way of doing it must differ from ours. We use writing, speech, and gestures. We use the language of words and the language of nature. God does not use these means now, yet He still reaches the mind with truth. Sometimes His providence suggests it. And then his spirit gives it power, setting it home upon the heart of the recipient. Sometimes the Lord makes use of preaching. Indeed, his ways are various. But whatever the method, the purpose is always the same to produce voluntary action in conformity to his law. If the Bible were entirely silent on this subject, We would still know from the nature of the mind and from the nature of those influences that only can move the human mind that the spirit must exert not physical but moral influences on the mind. However, we are not now left to a merely theoretical opinion. For we have the plain testimony of the Bible to the fact that the spirit uses truth in converting. And sanctifying people. Roman numeral two. We next inquire what is implied in this fact and what conclusions can be drawn from it. God is physically omnipotent, yet his moral influences exerted by the Spirit may be resisted. You will easily see that if the Spirit moved people by physical omnipotence, no mortal could possibly resist his influence. The Spirit's power would, of course, be irresistible, for who could withstand omnipotence? We know it is a fact that people can resist the Holy Spirit, for the nature of moral agency implies this, and the Bible declares it. The nature of moral agency implies the voluntary action of one who can yield to motive and follow light or not as he pleases. Where this power does not exist, moral agency cannot exist. And at whatever point this power ceases, moral agency ceases there also. Therefore, if our action is that of moral agents, 
our moral freedom to do or not do must remain. It cannot be set aside or in any way overruled. If God would in any way set aside our voluntary ability, He would of necessity terminate at once our moral and responsible action. Suppose God would grab hold of someone's arm with physical omnipotence and forcibly use it in acts of murder or of arson. Who does not see that the moral, responsible power of that person would be entirely set aside? Yet this is not more than if, in an equally irresistible manner, God would seize the person's will and compel it to act as he desired. The very idea that moral influence can ever be by itself be irresistible originates in an entire mistake as to the nature of the will and of moral action. The will of man can never act in any way other than freely in view of truth and of the motives it presents for action. Increasing the amount of such influence has no sort of tendency to impair the freedom of the will. Under any possible vividness of truth perceived, or under any amount of motive present to the mind, the will still has the same changeless power to yield or not yield, to act or refuse to act in accordance with this perceived truth. This fact shows that any work of God carried on by moral and not by physical power not only can be resisted by man, but also that man may be in very special danger of resisting it. If the Lord carries the work forward by means of revealed truth, there may be most imminent danger that people will neglect to study and understand this truth, or that, knowing this truth, they will refuse to obey it. Surely it is very much within the power of each person to shut out this truth from his consideration and close his heart against its influence. Roman numeral 3. We next inquire what it means to quench the Spirit. We will easily understand this when we come to see clearly what the work of the Spirit is. We have already seen that the Spirit's work is to enlighten the mind into truth concerning God, ourselves, and our duty. For example, the Spirit enlightens the mind into the meaning and self-application of the Bible. It takes the things of Christ and shows them to us. There is such a thing as refusing to receive this light. You can shut your eyes against it. You have the power to turn your eye entirely away and barely see it at all. You can absolutely refuse to follow it when seen, and in this case, God ceases to hold up the truth before your mind. Almost everyone knows by personal experience that the Spirit has the power to shine a marvelous light upon revealed truth so that this truth will stand before the mind in a new and most impressive form, and will operate upon it with astonishing strength. But this light of the Spirit may be quenched. There is, so to speak, a sort of heat, a warmth and vitality attending the truth when it is enforced by the Spirit. That is why we say that if one has the Spirit of God, his soul is warm, and if he does not have the Spirit, his heart is cold. This vital heat produced by the divine Spirit may be quenched. If someone resists the Spirit, he will certainly quench this vital power that it exerts upon the heart. Roman numeral 4. We will now point out some of the ways in which the Spirit may be quenched. 1. People often quench the Spirit by directly resisting the truth He presents to their minds. Sometimes people set themselves deliberately to resist the truth, determined that they will not yield to its power, 
at least for now. In such cases, it is amazing to see how great the influence of the will is in resisting the truth. Indeed, the will can always resist any moral considerations, for, as we have seen, there is no such thing as forcing the will to yield to truth. In those cases in which the truth presses strongly on the mind, there is credible evidence that the Spirit is present by His power. It is in precisely these cases that people are especially prone to set themselves against the truth, and therefore are in the utmost danger of quenching the Spirit. They hate the truth presented. It frustrates their chosen path of indulgence. They feel irritated and harassed by its claims. They resist and quench the Spirit of the Lord. You have undoubtedly often seen such cases, and if so, you have undoubtedly noticed this other remarkable fact that often occurs. After a short struggle in resisting truth, the conflict is over, and that particular truth almost completely stops affecting the mind the individual becomes hardened to its power. He seems quite able to disregard it and drive it from his thoughts, or, if this fails and the truth is thrown before his mind, he still finds it relatively easy to resist its claims. He felt greatly annoyed by that truth until he had quenched the spirit, and now he is no longer bothered by it. If you have seen cases like this, you have undoubtedly seen how, as the truth pressed upon their minds, they became agitated, offended, and then even angry. But they remained stubborn in resisting until at last the conflict eases. The truth makes no more impression upon them, and is from then on quite dead to them. They grasp it only with the greatest dimness and care nothing about it. Let me ask here. Have not some of you had this very experience? Have you not resisted some truth until it has ceased to affect your minds? If so, then you may conclude that you have quenched the Spirit of God in that case. 2. The Spirit is often quenched when people try to support error. People are sometimes foolish enough to attempt to support a position by an argument that they have good reason to know is a false position. They argue it until they get committed to it. They indulge in a dishonest state of mind, and so quench the Spirit. They are usually left to believe the very lie that they so unwisely attempted to support. I have seen many such cases when people began to defend and maintain a position that they know is wrong, and they continued in it until they quenched the Spirit of God. They believed their own lie, and it is to be feared that they will die under its delusions. 3. The Spirit of God is quenched by unkind judgments. Perhaps nothing more certainly quenches the Spirit than to question the motives of others and judge them harshly. It is so unlike God and so hostile to the law of love that it is no wonder that the Spirit of God is completely opposed to it and turns away from those who take part in it. 4. The Spirit is grieved by harsh and indecent language. People often grieve the Spirit of God by using such language towards those who disagree with them. It is always safe to presume that people who give in to such behavior have already grieved the Spirit of God completely away. 5. The Spirit of God is quenched by a bad temper. When a bad temper and spirit are stirred up in individuals or in a community, 
a revival of religion suddenly ceases. The Spirit of God is repressed and quenched. There is no more prevailing prayer, and no more sinners are converted. 6. Often the Spirit is quenched by diverting the attention from the truth. Since the Spirit operates through the truth, it is most obvious that we must pay attention to this truth that the Spirit wants to keep before our minds. If we refuse to listen, as we always can if we choose to do so, we will almost certainly quench the Holy Spirit. 7. We often quench the Spirit by giving in to excessive excitement on any subject. If the subject is outside of practical divine truth, strong excitement diverts attention from such truth and makes it almost impossible to feel its power. While the mind sees and feels strongly about the subject in which it is excited, it sees dimly and feels distant regarding the vital things of salvation. Therefore, the spirit is quenched. The extreme enthusiasm may even be on some really religious topic. Sometimes I have seen a burst, a real tornado of feeling in a revival, but in such cases, truth loses its hold on the minds of the people. They are too much excited to take serious views of the truth and of the moral duties it instills. However, by no means is all religious excitement to be condemned. There must be enough emotion to stir up the mind to serious thought, enough to give the truth an edge and power. It is always good, though, to avoid that measure of excitement that throws the mind from its balance and renders its understanding of truth uncertain or irregular. 8. The spirit is quenched by entertaining preconceived ideas. Whenever the mind is made up on any subject before it is thoroughly examined, that mind is closed against the truth and the spirit is quenched. When there are strong preconceived ideas, it seems impossible for the spirit to act, and of course, his influence is quenched. The mind is so committed that it resists the first efforts of the spirit. Thousands have done so. Thousands of people have ruined their souls for eternity in this way. Therefore, let everyone keep his mind open to conviction and to be sure to carefully examine all important questions, especially great questions about duty to God and man. I am not speaking now against being firm in maintaining your position after you thoroughly understand it and are sure it is the truth. But while pursuing your investigations, be sure that you are really honest and yield your mind to all the reasonable evidence you can find. 9. The spirit is often quenched by violating one's conscience. There are circumstances under which violating one's conscience seems to quench the light of God in the soul forever. Maybe you have seen cases like this where people have had a very tender conscience on some subject, but all at once they come to have no conscience at all on that subject. I am aware that change of conduct sometimes results from change of views without any violation of conscience, but the situation I speak of is where the conscience seems to be killed. All that remains of it seems as hard as a stone. I have sometimes thought that the Spirit of God had much more to do with conscience than we usually think. The fact is undeniable that people sometimes experience very great and sudden changes in the amount of sensibility of conscience that they feel on some subjects. 
This is only to be accounted for by the premise that the Spirit has power to awaken the conscience and make it pierce like an arrow. Then when people sin, despite the reproof of conscience, the Spirit is quenched. The conscience loses all its sensitivity. A complete change takes place, and the person continues in sin as if he never had any conscience to forbid it. It sometimes happens that the mind is awakened just prior to committing some particular sin. Something seems to say to the person, if you do this, you will be forsaken of God. A strange apprehension warns him to stop. If he continues, the whole mind receives a dreadful shock. The very eyes of the mind seem to be almost put out. The moral perceptions are strangely irrational and confused. A deadly harm is done to the conscience on that specific subject, at least. And indeed, the injury to the conscience seems to affect all departments of moral action. In such circumstances, the Spirit of God seems to turn away and say, I can do no more for you. I have warned you faithfully and can warn you no more. All these results sometimes accumulate from neglect of plainly revealed duty. People avoid known duty through fear of the opinions of others or through dislike of some self-denial. In this crisis of trial, the Spirit does not leave them in a state of doubt or inattention as to duty, but keeps the truth and the claims of God vividly before the mind. Then, if people continue to commit the sin despite the Spirit's warnings, the soul is left in dreadful darkness. The light of the Spirit of God may be quenched forever. I do not know in how many cases I have seen people in great agony and even despair who have evidently quenched the Spirit in the manner just described. There is a case of a young man whom I know. He had a long trial on the question of preparing himself for the ministry. He contemplated the question for a long time. The claims of God were clearly set before him, but at last he resisted the convictions of duty, went away and got married, and turned away from the work to which God had seemed to call him. Then the Spirit left him. For a few years after, he remained entirely hardened as to what he had done and as to any claims of God upon him. But finally, his wife became sick and died. Then his eyes were opened. He saw what he had done. He sought the Lord, but sought in vain. No light returned to his darkened, desolate soul. It no longer seemed his duty to prepare for the ministry. That call of God had ceased. His cup of wretchedness seemed to be filled to the brim. He often spent whole nights in most intense agony, groaning, crying for mercy, or reflecting in anguish upon the dire despair that spread its universe of desolation all around him. He was so absolutely miserable under these reproaches of a guilty conscience and these thoughts of deep despair that I have often feared he would take his own life. I could mention many other similar cases. People refuse to do known duty, and this refusal does deadly harm to their own moral sense and to the Spirit of the Lord. Consequently, there remains for them only a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. Hebrews 10.27 10. People often quench the Spirit by indulging their appetites and passions. You would be astonished if you knew how often the Spirit is grieved by this means until a crisis is formed of such a nature that they seem to quench the light of God at once 
from their souls. Some people indulge their appetite for food to the injury of their health. Although they know they are hurting themselves, and the Spirit of God objects and implores them to desist from ruinous self-indulgence, they persist in their course and are given up by God. From that point on, their appetites control them to the ruin of their spirituality and of their souls. The same may be true of any form of physical indulgence. 11. The spirit is often quenched by indulging in dishonesty. People engaged in business will take little advantages in buying and selling. Sometimes they are powerfully convinced of the great selfishness of this, and they see that this is not at all loving their neighbor as themselves. It may happen that someone who is about to drive a good bargain will ask himself the question, is this right? He will consider it in his mind for a while and will say to himself, now, this neighbor of mine needs this article very much, and he will suffer if he does not get it. This will give me a great chance to add to the price. But then, would this be doing to him what I would want him to do to me? He looks and thinks. He sees his duty, but he ends up deciding in favor of his selfishness. Eternity alone will disclose the consequences of such a decision. When the Spirit of God has followed such people for a long time, has made them see their danger, has kept the truth before them, and finally, seizing the favorable moment, makes a last effort to save them, and this proves futile, then the die is cast. From then on, all restraints are gone, and the selfish person is abandoned by God. He continues to go from bad to worse. He possibly ends up in the state prison, and certainly in hell. 12. People often quench the Spirit by casting concern aside and suppressing prayer. It is true that suppressing prayer will always quench the Spirit. It is wonderful to see how naturally and earnestly the Spirit leads us to pray. If we were really led by the Spirit, we would be drawn many times a day to secret prayer and would be continually lifting up our hearts in silent prayers whenever the mind unwinds itself from other urgent obligations. The Spirit in the hearts of saints is preeminently a spirit of prayer, and of course, to suppress prayer will always quench the Spirit. Some of you might have been in this very situation. You once had the spirit of prayer, but now you have lost it. You once had access to God, but you have it no longer. You have no more enjoyment in prayer. You no longer groan and agonize over the state of the church and of sinners. If the spirit of prayer is gone, where are you now? Sadly, you have quenched the Spirit of God. You have put out His light and have driven His influences from your soul. 13. The Spirit is quenched by empty and useless conversation. Few people seem to be aware of how wicked this is and how certainly it quenches the Holy Spirit. Christ said that, for every idle word that man shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Matthew 12, 36. 14. People quench the Holy Spirit by a spirit of levity and foolishness. People also quench the Holy Spirit by indulging a quick-tempered and irritable spirit. A spirit of laziness can also quench the spirit. Many people indulge in this to such an extent as to completely drive away the Holy Spirit. Another sure way to quench the Spirit of God in the soul 
is by a spirit of procrastination and by indulging themselves in making excuses for neglect of duty. 15. It is to be feared that many people have quenched the Spirit by resisting the doctrine and duty of sanctification. This subject has been widely discussed for a few years past, and the doctrine has also been greatly opposed. Several church bodies have taken a stand against it, and it is sometimes to be feared that clergy members have said and done at these denominational meetings what they would not by any means have said or done in their own homes or pulpits. Is it not also probable that many ministers and some laymen have been influenced by this very action of these groups to oppose the doctrine, the fear of man having become a snare to their souls? May it not also be the case that some have really opposed the doctrine because it raises a higher standard of personal holiness than they like, too high, perhaps, to be able to consider themselves to be Christians, too high for their own experience, and too high for their own tastes and conduct for future life. Who does not see that opposition to the doctrine and duty of sanctification on any such grounds must certainly and fatally quench the Holy Spirit? No work can lie nearer to the heart of Jesus than the sanctification of His people. Therefore, nothing can so greatly grieve Him as to see this work hindered much more to see it opposed and discouraged. An earnest and dire emphasis is given to these considerations when you consider the facts respecting the current state of piety in very many churches throughout the land. You do not need to ask if revivals are experienced, if Christians are prayerful, self-denying, alive in faith, and in love to God and to others. You do not need to ask if the work of sanctifying the church is moving on rapidly and is displaying itself by abundant fruits of righteousness. The answer is seen before you can even ask the question. How sad that the Spirit would be quenched under the spreading of the very truth that should sanctify the church. What can save if the gospel promise in all its fullness is so twisted or resisted as to quench the Spirit, serving only to harden the heart? Roman numeral 5 I will now speak of the consequences of quenching the Holy Spirit. 1. One consequence is great darkness of mind. Abandoned by God, the mind sees truth so dimly that it makes no useful impression. Such people read the Bible without interest or benefit. It becomes to them a dead letter, and they generally lay it aside unless some disagreement leads them to search it. They take no such spiritual interest in it than would make its study delightful. Have not some of you been in this very state of mind? This is that darkness of nature that is common to people when the Spirit of God is withdrawn. 2. Another result is usually much coldness and dullness of mind in regard to Christianity generally. It leaves to the mind no such interest in spiritual things as people take in worldly things. People often get into such a state that they are greatly interested in some worldly matters, but not in true religion. Their souls are all awake while worldly things are being discussed, but if some spiritual matter is brought up, their interest is gone at once you can hardly get them to attend a prayer meeting. You know that they are in a worldly state of mind, for if the Spirit of the Lord was with them, they would be more deeply interested in Christ 
and what draws them nearer to him than in anything else. But observe them. See them at a political meeting or a theatrical show, and their souls are all on fire. But go and appoint a prayer meeting or a meeting to promote a revival, and they do not attend, or if they do, they feel no interest in the matter. Such people often seem not to know themselves. They might think they attend to these worldly things only for the glory of God. I will believe this when I see them interested in spiritual things as much as in worldly things. When someone has quenched the Spirit of God, his religion is all outside. His vital, heart-affecting interest in spiritual things is gone. It is indeed true that a true Christian will take some interest in worldly things because he regards them as part of his duty to God. And to him, they are spiritual things. 3. The mind falls very naturally into various errors in religion. The heart wanders from God, loses its hold on the truth, and the person might insist that he now takes a much more broad-minded and enlightened view of the subject than before. I recently had a conversation with a man who had given up the idea that the Old Testament was inspired. He had given up the doctrine of the atonement, and indeed every distinctive doctrine of the Bible. He remarked to me, I used to think as you do, but I have now come to take a more progressive and enlightened view of the subject. Indeed, this is not a more progressive and enlightened view. He is so blinded that he cannot see that Christ confirmed the Old Testament as the oracles of God and yet he flatters himself that he now takes a more broad-minded and enlightened view. There can be nothing stronger than Christ's affirmations respecting the inspiration of the Old Testament. And yet while this man admits that these affirmations are true, he denies the very thing they affirm. Most liberal and enlightened view indeed. How can you possibly account for such views except on the basis that for some reason the man has fallen into a strange, unnatural state of mind, a sort of mental absurdity in which moral truths are hidden or distorted? Everyone knows that there cannot be a greater absurdity than to acknowledge the divine authority of the teachings of Christ and yet reject the Old Testament. The language of Christ affirms and implies the authority of the Old Testament in all those ways in which, on the belief that the Old Testament is inspired, he might be expected to affirm and imply this fact. The Old Testament does not indeed exhaust divine revelation. It left more things to be revealed. Christ taught much, but he taught nothing more clearly than the divine authority of the Old Testament. 4. Quenching the Spirit often results in unfaithfulness to God. What can account for such a case as that I have just mentioned, unless God has allowed the mind to fall into very great darkness? 5. Another result of quenching the Holy Spirit is great hardness of heart. The mind becomes callous to all that class of truths that make it pliable and tender. The mobility of the heart under truth depends entirely upon its moral hardness. If it is very hard, truth makes no impression. If it is soft, then it is as pliant as air and moves quickly to the touch of truth in any direction. 6. Another result is deep delusion in regard to their spiritual state. 
It is remarkable that people will claim to be Christians when they have rejected every distinctive doctrine of Christianity. Indeed, such people sometimes claim that by rejecting in this way almost all of the Bible and all its great design of salvation by an atonement, they have become real Christians. They think that they now have got the true light. Indeed. How can such a delusion be accounted for except on the basis that the Spirit of God has abandoned the person to his own ways and left him to complete and absolute delusion? 7. People in this condition often justify themselves in the most obvious wrong because they put darkness for light and light for darkness. Isaiah 5.20 They entrench themselves in entirely false principles, as if those principles were true and could adequately justify their sin. Remarks 1. People are often not aware what is going on in their minds when they are quenching the Spirit of God. Duty is presented and pressed upon them, but they do not realize that this is really the work of the Spirit of God. They are not aware of the present voice of the Lord to their hearts, nor do they see that this solemn impression of the truth is nothing other than the effect of the Holy Spirit on their minds. 2. So when they accept different views and abandon their former opinions, they do not seem aware of the fact that God has departed from them. They flatter themselves that they have become very tolerant and very much enlightened and have only given up their former errors. Sadly, they do not see that the light they now walk in is darkness, complete darkness. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah 5.20 3. You see how to account for the spiritual state of some people. Without the clue that this subject provides, you might be much misled. In the case just described, suppose that I had taken it for granted that this man was in truth taking a more enlightened and reasonable view. I would have been misguided entirely. I have good reason to know how people become Unitarians and Universalists, having seen hundreds of instances. It is not by becoming more and more people of prayer and real spirituality. It is not by getting nearer and nearer to God. They do not go on progressing in holiness, prayer, and communion with God until in their great achievements they reach a point where they deny the inspiration of the Bible, give up public prayer, leave the ordinances of the gospel, and probably stop private prayer too. Those who give up on these things are not led away while wrestling in prayer and while walking humbly and closely with God. No one ever moved away from biblical views while in this state of mind. Rather, people first get away from God and quench His Spirit. Then they embrace one error after another. Truth, and we could almost say truthfulness itself, leaves the mind or those qualities or moral attributes that enable the mind to discern and understand the truth. Then darkness becomes so universal and so deceptive that people imagine themselves to be entirely in the light. 4. Such a state of mind is most tragic and often hopeless. What can be done when someone has grieved away the Spirit of God? 5. 
When an individual or a group of people have quenched the Spirit, they are in the utmost danger of being given up to some delusion that will soon bring them to destruction. 6. They take entirely false ground who maintain that a religious movement that is the work of God cannot be resisted. For example, I have often seen cases where people would stop a revival and then say, it was not a real revival, for if it had been, it would not have stopped. Nothing can be more dangerous than for someone to think that he cannot stop the work of God in his own soul. Let a group of people adopt the belief that revivals come and go without our activity and intercession, and by the instrumentality of God only, and it will bring absolute ruin on them. There never was a revival that could exist three days under such a delusion. The solemn truth is that the Spirit is most easily quenched. There is no moral work of His that cannot be resisted. 7. An immense responsibility pertains to revivals. There is always fearful danger that the Spirit would be resisted. When the Spirit is dealing with an individual, there is the greatest danger that something might be said that could be ruinous to the soul. Many people who have attended these meetings are in the greatest danger. The Spirit often labors with sinners here, and many have grieved Him away. 8. Many people do not seem to realize the nature of the Spirit's operations, the possibility always of resisting, and the great danger of quenching that light of God in the soul. I could name many young people who were once considering the matters pertaining to their soul whose hearts are now dull. Where are those young people who were so serious and who attended the inquiry meeting so long in our last revival? Sadly, they have quenched the Holy Spirit. Is not this the case with you, young man? Is it not this way with you, young woman? Have you not quenched the Spirit until your mind is now darkened and your heart is severely hardened? How long before the church bells ring to announce your death and your soul goes down to hell? How long before you lose your hold on all truth and the Spirit will have left you completely? Let me bring this appeal home to the hearts of those who have not yet entirely quenched the light of God in the soul. Do you find that truth still takes hold of your conscience, that God's word flashes on your mind, that heaven's light is not yet completely extinguished, and that there is still a quivering of conscience? You hear of a sudden death, like that of the young man the other day, and trembling seizes your soul, for you know that another blow may single you out. Then, by all the mercies of God, I beseech you to be careful what you do. Quench not the Holy Spirit so that your sun does not go down in everlasting darkness just as you may have seen the sun dim when it hid behind a dark, intense, ominous thundercloud, so an ignorant sinner dies. Have you ever seen such a death? Dying, he seemed to sink into a dreadful cloud of fire and storm and darkness. The scene was fearful, like a sunsetting of storms, gathering clouds, rolling thunders, and forked lightnings. The clouds gather low in the west. The spirit of the storm rides on the blast. Erupting thunders seem as if they would divide the solid earth. Behind such a fearful cloud, the sun hides, 
and all is darkness. In a similar way, I have seen sinners give up the ghost and drop into a world of storms, howling tempests, and flashing fire. How unlike the setting sun of a mild summer evening! All nature seems to put on her sweetest smile as she bids the king of day adieu. This is how the saint of God dies. There may be paleness on his lip and cold sweat on his brow, but there is beauty in that eye and glory in the soul. I think of a woman recently converted who became very sick. She was brought down to the gates of death, yet her soul was full of heaven. Her voice was the music of angels. Her countenance shone, and her eyes sparkled as if the forms of heavenly glory were embodied in her dying features. Nature at last sinks. The moment of death has come. She stretches out her dying hands and hails the waiting spiritual assembly. She cries out, Glory to God! I am coming! I am coming! Notice that she did not say that she was going, but that she was coming. Now compare this to the dying sinner. A frightful glare is on his countenance, as if he saw ten thousand demons, as if the sun were descending into an ocean of storms to be lost in a world filled with tornadoes, storms, and death. Young man and young woman, you will die just so if you quench the Spirit of God. Jesus himself has said, if ye believe not that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. John 8, 24 Beyond such a death, there is a dreadful hell.